Our scripture reading today is uh, from Genesis 1-1 through 2-4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that it was that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielded seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and every li- everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for fruit. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all, this, all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of, hev- of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Passages such as Genesis 1 contribute to our worldview And in fact, I would submit that everything in your life that is out of order is out of order because it fails to comply with and to to speak in harmony with what we just read, what we just heard. Everything in God's creation was created originally good, and that original goodness of the creation was done by God because he desired to reveal himself through the things which he has made. And so I want to examine this passage and teaching, which we, especially if we've been in church for any length of time, or even if we grew up in Sunday school or had Christian homes, we've heard this passage so many times that we often fail to see the import and significance of what is really throughout the entire text. And so today I want to look really at a few different things. First, I want to look at an echo of the Trinitarian God in the first verses of your scriptures. The first verses contain a veiled reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want to put that forth as really the emphasis of what today is about. Today, as, as we celebrate Trinity Sunday, it's a day, it's a feast day, remembering the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and celebrating and thanking God for revealing himself to us as he is. When we say that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not saying that he reveals himself at a time as the Father, and at another time as the Son, and at another time as the Spirit. That would be called modalism, if you've ever heard of that term. We're not discussing God's revelation as a temporary picture of one thing and then the next, but rather as three persons cooperating in a harmony to bring about his created world and the redemption of that world. And so today we're celebrating the fact that the triune God has truly revealed himself to us. God does not have an alternate reality or an alternate mode of existence other than which he has revealed. He has revealed himself truly to us. And by understanding that, we can truly know that God. It is not a mystery as to who our God is. He reveals himself through the things that he's made. And primarily, he does that at the very first few verses of this chapter to reveal himself as he is, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to look at the Imago Dei. That is a a fancy term. It's a Latin term for the image of God. And the reason I want to give you that term, Imago Dei, is not to 
show that I know Latin because I don't know Latin, uh, but, but rather just to say that that term encompasses a number of different ideas, and having that term as a kind of a category in your mind is really beneficial. What do I mean by that? I mean that human beings, as we'll see in a, in a few minutes, human beings bear the image of God. They have it marked upon them. And you, you've been made in the image of God. You're, you are mightily significant. And what I want to do today is kind of show how that image bearing, that, that aspect of who you are as a human being, is to be exercised through the proper use of God's creation. That the, the bearing of God's image goes hand in hand with using created things and other creatures in a proper and godly way. So that image of God being married to the idea of using and taking dominion over God's creation to bring about a good outcome, to glorify it. We'll look at exactly what that means. And then I want to look at God's good creation, that there is an original goodness marked upon the created world, and that original goodness, though marred and temporarily veiled, is still there, and it is still being brought about in a new creation, finally, as we'll see, that this chapter, although a wonderful outset, a wonderful start to, to the created world, comes right before, as we, we all might know, a great fall that, that happens just two chapters later. And so I want to look at how this creation, this original good creation, actually totally sets the stage for a new creation in Jesus Christ. So from the very beginning of the scriptures, as we referred to earlier, God reveals himself as he is through what he does. God does not give us a theological textbook, and the very first verse is not, and God is a triune God. It, it actually does have an echo of that, as we're about to see, but the way that God reveals himself is through how he acts, through what he does. That is to say, God's acts reveal something about God's nature. When God is doing something in the scriptures, it's telling something about who he is as a person. He doesn't act but except for according to who he is in himself. And so in the beginning, when God creates the heavens and the earth, this summary statement, we see the, the outset of God's desire, not only to show forth creation in the actual act, but by the Holy Spirit, he has inspired Moses to record these events, to record this history as it faithfully came about. Moses, though he was not alive at this time, was inspired by the Spirit, and Moses faithfully recorded exactly what God was doing in creation and subsequently wanted to highlight and emphasize in the recording of that history. And so Moses pens these words, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then we hear that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What a wonderful way. I mean, the beauty of what we see here as we're about to look in, in close detail is unparalleled. All other myth forms or, or theories of the origins of the world or the universe have nothing to compare with the beauty of what we just heard. There are three amazing observations that are apparent from this text. First, I wanna point out that the word God is the word Elohim. And in the Hebrew use of the word Elohim, that's a Hebrew word, that word is plural. And 
The importance of that, if you've studied any sort of language or grammar, especially if you haven't learned English but another language, you might understand that the verbs and subjects are very tied to their plurality or their singularity. We have this in English, right? Our verbs and our subjects or our nouns, they go together. You have to have subject-verb agreement. And what's amazing is this verse does not have subject-verb agreement. And that is really our second point, is the second point, and much more astonishingly than the first, is not that the word God is plural, but that the word created is a masculine singular verb. If you've ever studied Spanish or any of the other Romance languages, you know that the verbs are gendered. That is to say that the verbs indicate the gender, male or female, of the person who took the action. And so when Moses is penning these words, he's saying there's this pluro Elohim, this God who in himself is a community, and he singularly, masculinely created the world. This is amazingly beautiful. Finally, we see in verse 2 that God has a spirit. This God is not only the creator God, but he has a spirit, a spirit who, though spiritual, can, can come and accomplish something in the natural. This spirit who is a spiritual being, comes and hovers. He takes a place in his created world. Immediately, we begin to see this God who is beyond the created world, beyond time itself, beyond even the heavens or the earth, who existed before the heavens and the earth were a place in which he needed to exist. That existence, which is outside of the created realm, then becomes in interaction with the created realm. From the second verse of our scriptures, our God steps into time and space. And so we see this community, this Elohim, this three-person God, masculinely, singularly creates the world and then immediately begins to enter it and to form it and invigorate it. Why is this significant? Because Moses pens these words, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as we believe, inspires Moses to record this veiled revelation. Why do I say a veiled revelation? I mean that there's echoes of this, and Paul says that whenever Moses is read in the synagogues, they they see uh, God, but they see him in a veil, and when one turns to Christ, that veil is removed. In understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can make sense of this idea that this plural God did a verb that is masculine and singular. How does he do this? He does this by the Son executing the creation. That John 1, 3, tell, what it tells us is absolutely true. That all things, though they were created by God, they were created through the Son. And nothing which was created was created except through the Son. So we see this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this harmony of activity from the very onset of our scriptures. Why is this important? It's important because it reveals who God is as he is in himself. And we cannot know God apart from knowing him as he is. If we know God in our own conceptions, our own imaginations of what he's like, that's not really knowing God. That's knowing a God of our own making. And so it's deeply important that as Christians, we understand who God is so that we can understand what his creation is all about. This is not a God who emerges out of chaos and spews forth a universe. This is a God who already is at harmony in himself. And from that love and harmony that he has in himself, he creates the world. This world is our God's world, and this world is to be used for our God 
to reveal who he is, it does that, and also to honor him and glorify him in our use. So creation does not arise out of conflict or strife. If you look at any creation myth, any origin of the universe outside of the Christian origin that is put forth in these verses, it has some notion of chaos. If you look at the Greek myths or the Chinese myths or the Japanese myths or any of the various cultures around the world, they begin with a primordial soup and from there emerges a turtle upon which the earth is set or a cow or some other thing which they believe is the basis for their world. The atheistic humanists have created a theory of evolution which presupposes no existing God no master organizer or administrator or invigorator, but rather after an explosion of matter which came from nowhere, it ultimately is leading nowhere. That's really what we see here in these verses is that God through inspiring Moses is smashing the myths of man as to how the world came about. And he's putting forth his own loving desire here. See, Genesis 1 is not just to be used in some kind of hammer-wielding defense of six-day creationism in the scientific realm. It also is to be used to put forth the theological realm. Evolution isn't just bad science. That it is bad science, but even worse than that, it's terrible theology because it tells you a lie, not only about who God is as an absentee God, if, if there is even a God, It's a God detached from and disinterested to the created world and therefore you. I remember hearing Richard Dawkins talking about uh, the fact that, you know, if you're not familiar with Richard Dawkins, he's an important figure to know in atheism. Uh, He's a very popular proponent of atheistic material worldviews and he's a denier of all gods. And, And according to the book of Proverbs, he's foolishly a denier of all gods. He supposes himself to be wise and so he, he, pontificates these amazing theories. For example, he he puts forth that when we see a banana go from green to yellow and then to brown, it's not really communicating whether or not the banana is ripe to eat. It just has the appearance of communicating because down through the centuries, the bananas which became yellow at the time to be eaten Uh, to be eaten, were then eaten by animals and their seeds were spread and that's how bananas came to be. And what's amazing about that, that's what, um, what's amazing about that is he puts forth this theory that a banana doesn't really communicate that it's ripe or not, but rather it just has the appearance of communicating because time and chance worked through centuries and produced a banana that through the process of selection came to have a feature that we as humans deceive ourselves to interpret as intentionality of the banana. The problem with that theory, though, is it proves way too much. Because what's ever true of the banana, whatever process produced the banana, is also the same process that produced Richard Dawkins. And so Richard Dawkins doesn't have the... He doesn't actually communicate. He just has the appearance of communicating. (laughs) Because he's just been a product of primordial processes operating on Homo sapiens through millennia, through centuries, through, through millions and billions of years, and he himself isn't really communicating truth and reality. You see, what you do when you divorce God from the history of origins is you destroy everything. 
You don't, you don't just destroy your understanding of how things came about. You destroy purpose, you destroy truth, you destroy reality. And so Genesis 1 is much more important. It's a wonderful science, it's wonderful theories of origin, it's, it is the truth of God, but the implications have to be pressed out. I would encourage you, read as many books as you can on creation versus evolution, but never neglect the fact that this is deep theology. What we see here is radically important to how we understand ourselves and really how we understand God's world. So our God creates things, the created world, in order that he might reveal himself. And as we just put forth, his creation necessarily will tell us something about who he is. That is, when Paul says in Romans 1 that the divine attributes, the invisible attributes and the power of God are revealed through the things which he has made. And so a, a denial of the things which he has made becomes and arises from a denial of who he is. And they go hand in hand. You can't have one with, without the other. So the God who creates heaven and earth, therefore, is nothing but a personal, all-powerful being that speaks and the act of his speech causes things to come about. Isn't this amazing? Have you ever used Siri? If you have an iPhone, you have this Siri. You, you tell it something. My wife was doing this in the car. She told it four times, and it misunderstood her every time. Uh, and it never did what she wanted. And what, what an amazing testimony. This God is the one who speaks, and light comes into existence. This is the type of God that we have, that his voice is powerful, that his voice causes things to come about. Romans 4 talks about, Paul uses this phrase, and it's slightly out of context uh, for this use, but he calls things into being which are not. That is, our God speaks forth, he calls forth light. He says, let there be light, and the light obeys his voice. He causes light to come about. So our God is a community. He's a, a plurality in himself. He has deep love and desire creating through his son, sending his spirit into the earth to invigorate it, to hover over the waters, to prepare it for the week ahead in the created realm that God is about to do. And then he begins to demonstrate who he is. Our God is not a silent God. Our God is not a God disconnected from his creation. He's a God who brought his creation to be by his voice. And so his word is mightily important. He says, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God begins to create forth things. He calls them forth, and then he lays hold of them and begins to separate, to fill, and to form. And he does this day after day. What does this tell us about our God? It tells us that he is intimately concerned with his creation. That he is not a God that is just far off, that never gets involved in history, never touches time. Our God, even before the incarnation, is laying a hold of his created realm and he's beginning to move it about and call it forth and to shape it the way that he wants. So, after establishing the earth and all of its creatures on the final day of creation, God creates man. Genesis 1.26, remember that word Elohim is plural. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. One of the things that's important to see here is the, the cults, the 
various Christo-denying uh, cults, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, etc. They take this verse and they completely twist it out of context, saying that God was speaking to the angels. And it's important to see how impossible that is, because it says, let us make man in our image. What you would have to be saying is, if let us, plural, is not referring to Father, Son, and Spirit, but, but a God and angels, and that's the plurality, that they are calling forth, then what you would be saying is that God shares the same image as the angels. That must be flatly denied. God's image is a property of his person, and angels are created beings, not created in the image of God. That's a little side point if you ever have a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness knock on your door. You want to be ready, and Genesis 1.26 is a great beginning place for that. God then gives to man, he says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I love that last part, every creeping thing. I went to, last night I went to a friend's uh, party. It was a crawfish boil, and it was the first time I had ever eaten crawfish, and I got over the slight weirdness for the moment or two of, of what I was doing because I remembered, oh yeah, this is a creeping thing, and I'm supposed to have dominion over it, so I'll eat it. And, and, I, I kind of liked it, but I, you know, I just got over it I, because it, it's a little thing that crawls on the ground, and I'm, I'm a man. Shellfish are now legal for us. So, so the, point, the point is that God is creating man, and he's creating man and giving him a part of his authority. He's investing man with the right to execute dominion over the earth. Day after day, God says in these verses, we didn't cover each one of them. It'll take too long to cover them. He calls forth things. He says, let there be light. Let the earth bring forth vegetation. Let the waters swarm and the the heavens be filled. But here he says, let us make man. It cannot be missed. It's so, the parallelism is so clear that it's, it's God's wanting to say through this that he was content to call forth light to come about. He was content to let the earth bring forth and the seas be filled or swarm with or the heavens to be filled with. But here he says, let us make man in our image. You see, God is calling forth day after day things to come about, but here he gets involved on a more intimate level. And his self-giving in disposing his image is tied to the fact that he did it personally. In Genesis 2, we see this, that he comes and personally fashions Adam and Eve. We, we sang a song this morning, the doxology, and one of the verses includes this saying, praise God who breathed in us our breath, that God himself formed Adam, the man. He formed him from the earth and laid hold of the earth and put Adam together personally. And then from that place of having formed him, he then breathed into Adam his own spirit. He did that for none of the rest of the creatures. Each of them were given life just by him causing them to come about. But here he forms Adam, breathes in his spirit, and deposits his image. And Adam will retain that image, though it will be marred. He bears it according to his likeness. It's kind of hard to see from the English Standard Version, 
But uh, the King James lets you see this a little bit better in, in a way. Each day he says that the earth should bring forth vegetation and the water should be swarming. And then he goes on to describe how their children will come about. Let each plant bring forth seed after its own kind. And here it can't be missed that God says, let us make man according to, to our image or after our image. That is to say that God brought forth men according to his kind. That doesn't mean they're God, but it does mean that they've been invested with a dignity that none of the rest of creation has. Again, I want to just highlight the importance for you in understanding who you are as a person. Your sense of personal self-worth cannot come from an atheistic humanism. It absolutely can't because atheistic humanism provides you with no basis for your existence. Man is not, therefore, a cosmic accident coming from nowhere, going nowhere. That's what atheistic humanism presupposes and tells you. It lies to you saying that you were not fashioned by God, and indeed you weren't even, you weren't even selected from a group of people, but rather you, you came out of this primordial muck that got there after dust for billions of years coalesced around a star that was formed. And that dust eventually became a planet and then comets over centuries and millennia and millions of years landed and deposited water on this thing called this earth. And then from there, little tiny single-celled creatures came out. You see, the problem with all of that is you ultimately are a cosmic accident that in the history and evaluation of all the other planets and galaxies around us, there's no place like the earth with formed human beings or any other living creatures. And so you are an anomaly on the blip of a meaningless timeline, which came out of nothing and is going ultimately to the heat death of the universe. Do you see how starkly different atheistic humanistic uh, evolution is compared to what is set forth before us, that we were intimately fashioned by a creator God and he invested us with his image and therefore we have great significance. One of our spiritual fathers in this church is a man by the name of Ray Nethery. Many of you have met Ray. He comes here every six to eight weeks. One of my favorite things that Ray always says, in fact, every time we have him share, which he doesn't like to do anymore, but every time we would have him share, he would say, he would say the same thing, that you were made in the image of God to mediate the presence of God to the garden around you, and that you should wake up and look yourself in the mirror and tell yourself, I am wonderfully created, and that my soul knows right well, that I'm mysteriously and wonderfully fashioned. That is what this chapter teaches us. It doesn't just teach us some science about how everything came to be. It, it is wonderful science. It is beautiful theology and is absolutely mysterious and dignifying anthropology. That is exactly what we're reading in these chapters. So we are not a cosmic accident, but rather we were created for a good glory and good pleasure to give God glory through the things that he was made. And interestingly, David says this exact same thing, that not only was Adam fashioned by God, but in his mother's womb, David says that I was knit together. Have you ever, have you ever seen a, a wonderful, you know, I did this in fourth grade, so the image doesn't hold, but have you ever seen a wonderful you know, person, usually a little old lady, doing some knitting. It's beautiful because what it says is that, that 
this little action of making whatever thing I'm going to be made is going to be given to one or two people. It's not mass-produced. It's not ultimately productive. But why is it being done? It's because whoever is going to receive this thing is worthy of my time. That's what God was doing when he was making you in your mother's womb. He was intimately fashioning you personally. You were brought forth by God for his great glory and pleasure because of his sovereign desire, and that should be your sense of self-purpose and worth. So, just as God has authority over everything in the creation, he gives dominion to man to rule over the creatures on his behalf and in his second. That is to say that God is the authority over his created world, and he gives to man temporarily some lesser authority that is held under his authority, that it's not a a separate authority, but it's an authority in a hierarchy, that God is the creator of everything and, and therefore owns and rules everything, and he gives to man for a time the right to wield dominion over the creatures. Verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So after giving man and creature a charge to live upon the earth, he gives them food, he gives them a place to live, having created land for them, God finishes observing his work and is completely satisfied. So our God is a plurality. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He creates through the Son and sends the Spirit forth to hover over the waters to invigorate it for the creation week ahead of us in Genesis 1-2. And then we see that God makes things and calls things forth. But each single day, he doesn't just speak. He also looks and he observes and he makes an evaluation or a judgment. He calls something good And if he was not pleased with it, he would not have called it good. Verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. It's interesting when I I don't like where the chapter is, the chapter break ends, because this verse, 2-1, is is an echo of 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and then And two, one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished or were created. And so our God is the God who not only speaks, but also sees. He is not a blind God. He is not indifferent to what takes place in his earth or in his created realm. He is observing it and watching it and wants it for a good purpose and is pleased with it. After seeing that he accomplished his purpose, God then rests. Verse 2 of Genesis 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These things are important to see because his, his resting is based upon his satisfaction, and his satisfaction is only possible if he is a God who can be pleased. So often we, when we present the gospel, we emphasize the holiness of God without, without keeping it in right relationship to his love and his mercy and his goodness. Now, I'm not saying we can divorce his holiness for, from his love or we, can, or we should emphasize his love more than his holiness because God is not a God of parts. God is who he is in himself. And so when I say that we emphasize his holiness, I'm saying that we tend to, from time to time, distort And we present this picture of a God who could never be satisfied. Yes, brothers and sisters, God hates sin. 
Why does he hate it? Because as we see, he looks at his creation and he wants to be pleased with it and sin is warring against his rule. But at the same time, at the end of this chapter, we see that God is pleased with his creation. He is happy with it. He is a God who can take delight in the things he has made. He is not like Zeus, who is constantly in strife with the other gods. He is not like Allah, who must be submitted to and pleased if at any point you could possibly earn his favor. He is a God who can be satisfied. And he is a God who is satisfied in his good creation. His act of rest, therefore, sanctifies time. God does not just move by his spirit to come in and hover, hover over the earth. He also, by the act of resting, begins to mark a pattern onto his created realm that every seventh day there ought to be a rest. Why? Because he blessed it and sanctified it. So, through, though creation was originally called good, we know after this that very quickly things will go bad. If you, if you are familiar with the story, it, it, it's very sad after this. Um, one of my friends, Logan Pyle, on Facebook this year, he, on, on gen, uh, January 2, he, he said, he put out a little comment saying, you know, reading Genesis 3 gets harder every year. Because what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is this beautiful harmony that the God of love, the God who existed before time and outside of creation, creates this wonderful environment and he establishes man, he forms man in his image, and he invests in man a part of his authority and then creates in Genesis 2, we see that God create a garden which he gives Adam, the man, a charge to tend and keep and extend and beautify its boundaries. And then very quickly in Genesis 3, we see that, that Adam failed his task. He let a serpent in that he should have prevented. And that serpent then was able to talk to Eve, the woman, for too long. And Eve bought into what he was, he was testifying to her. But it's so, it's so important to see that God is a God who evaluates and sees because it tells us that God desires his creation, but it's also important to know, it's also important to see that God judges things as good or not good, calling everything that he has made good, because he was the one who has the power and authority to call things good or evil. What was the chief temptation that Satan gave to the woman or the serpent gave to the woman? He said, you shall become like God. What's the implication? If you become like God, that means you're not like God. You see, Eve failed to understand, and Adam failed to protect her in this, that they already were like God, that they already bore his image. And so everything goes astray because this serpent is a liar from the beginning. He lied to them about who they were supposed to be. And so we have to see this, these verses in anticipation of what comes next, but also we have to see it in the context of the full gospel. That though this creation was originally good, man quickly turns against God's kind rule. Everything that is good and useful for glorification will be spoiled. I, I am reminded of this every time I look out my back door because I see my garden. And inevitably, even if I take very good care of it, the next day there will be a weed. Or a few days later, there will be more weeds. The point is that a curse came about through Adam's sin, that man's sin brings a curse upon the earth, affecting virtually everything. Why is this important to know? Is because God fully knew what he was doing when he brought about creation. And even though he knew what Adam would do, 
He still desired to do it. Why? Because he had a greater purpose in mind. He had a greater ultimate purpose that for a time he permitted man's rebellion and for a time he permitted that sin to infect his creation for one glorious and ultimate purpose of revealing his son as the redeemer of everything. Though men are tainted with sin in Christ, they can become new creations. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you are in Christ, you have become a new creation. That's really important to hear in the background of the original creation. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the future, that though men come from dust, they bear the image of the earthly man, they will be transformed, and they will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ, resurrected, ascended, and glorified. That when Jesus Christ returns, he will transform us as lowly human beings into glorified human beings. That is to say, we will be bestowed upon even a greater dignity than what we already have. Just as we bear God's image now, we will bear the image not only of our creator, but also of our redeemer. It's so important to hear what God says about men here so that we can hear what God says about men after the resurrection. Indeed, even though this curse comes upon all creation, it is given only temporarily. It is given for the express purpose that creation itself would be glorified and released by the, the redemption of the sons of God. That is the redemption of our bodies, as Paul puts forth. This is what I, my whole goal, my whole aim is to impress upon you a few things. One is that you would understand who this God who created you is, that he's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's a loving God who lovingly made the world, and he did that, and he gave his world dignity by becoming involved with it personally, and that he fashioned you. Not only did he fashion your first parent, Adam, he also fashioned you in your mother's womb. But not only that, I hope to give to you, through what we talked about today, an understanding of the future that where it all began tells where it's all going. That just as God made the heavens and the earth and then began to use them, he has not abandoned them, but is still making them new. He's making them a new creation in Christ. And ultimately, I want you to reevaluate how you see the dignity of time. You see, I was at uh, the Dominion Academy graduation last week, and Bishop Manto is a, is a person who is a bishop in the uh, Anglican Church of North America, and Dominion Academy, as many of you know, is a school that we're affiliated with. I'm, I'm on their board. I graduated from there. A few of you have, have graduated from there, uh, Deanna and Edwin. And during the graduation ceremony, as Father Manto was giving his address, he talked about this illustration that he used, and it was such a helpful correction to me that I wanted to share it with you today. He, he said that you know, I used to say that life is like a, a glass full of marbles, and each day you choose how you're going to spend that marble and how you're going to put it, where you're going to put it to. And then he said that upon reading his prayer book that day, that he was totally changed because the prayer book began with a prayer at the end of the day, thank you God for another day added to my life. And it brought such a correction to me that I thought, I, I began to rethink my entire life in, in just that moment. Uh, and what, what it did for me is it helped me understand, and I think that's what God is intending to do through Genesis 1. He's trying to say that the rest came at the end of the week. That even though there is a curse upon men today and that we will eventually die, that curse 
is lifted in Christ. And although we will still experience a bodily death, each one of us will, even though that is the case, we can live now, as Paul says, heirs of the grace of life. That each day that we celebrate in God's creation should be to his glory, to give him thanksgiving for what he's made and how we use it, to glorify him and enjoy him, as the the Westminster Confession teaches us, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God. And so I just want to give you this one nugget today, is that God sealed the goodness of his creation by designating it day after day, progressively glorifying it. And that's really what our Christian walk should be. We should not be people, especially us young people, as we begin to get in our 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. We should not become hardened and adopt the way of the world in which says, you know, next year I'm going to turn 30 and boy, I better get my act together because time's running out. No, we should adopt each day as, thank you, God, for adding another day to my life. That as we move through time, knowing Christ, we can live what Paul is saying, that we are progressing from one glory to the next until that day where we see him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise that we in him now have become new creations. We do pray, God, that you would allow us to hear what you're saying about your creation and about you yourself through your creation and that you would transform our lives, that we would become people who take a hold of the, the world and the earth and creatures, that we would exercise dominion to your glory and that we would orient ourselves to life and to your world as in a gracious sense, that we would not look at each day as something to be endured, but as a tool by which we might give you thanks. We do thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We pray by your spirit that you would make this teaching profitable. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.